For the past 25 years, Bordeaux Index has been relentless in our focus on changing the fine wine market for collectors and investors. Today, we are the largest seller of fine wine and spirits globally. Bordeaux Index. Join us and visit BordeauxIndex.com. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And today we're delighted to be joined by Amber Guinness. Amber is a cook, author and journalist. Born in London and growing up in Tuscany, she now lives in Florence, where she co-founded the Arniano Painting School, an artist's retreat. And her first book, A House Party in Tuscany, is out now. Amber, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you for having me. Amber, as listeners know, we always start at the beginning. What are your earliest memories of food? Well, my earliest memories of food, they're quite linked to where I grew up. So I grew up in this um, in this farmhouse on a beautiful hill in Tuscany between Siena and Montalcino. And until I was about five, it was essentially a building site. And when my parents bought it, it had a roof and windows and floors but it didn't have electricity or water or plumbing or sort of quite a lot of basic things. So we kind of camped in the in the big room upstairs for a long time because it was very geared towards agriculture. The ground floor would have all been um, for livestock and pigs and chickens and things. And so we were camping upstairs with a very basic gas cooker linked up to a bombolone, which is a gas cylinder. And so she would make it was quite a lot of pasta uh, and she would make something called pasta with data sauce, which was my sort of dad's harking back to his Oxford bachelor days. of, And it was very cold butter mixed with tomato paste and parmesan. And then you <laughs> toss the pasta through. And for some reason, just the fact that the butter was cold meant it melted in this really pleasing way. So we loved that. And then as the, that was sort of more winter, it was a lot of pasta and soup. My mum made a very delicious um, chickpea and rosemary soup where she infused the oil with lots of rosemary and then would whiz up the chickpeas with tomatoes. And that was kind of really warming. And that was more winter. And then as we went on to spring, it was all about kind of picnics in the garden and making the most of these very basic amenities for the first few years. So lots of broad beans with pecorino and bowls and bread and cheese and all these things. And she would lay out these beautiful picnics on a sort of disused door which was balanced on two wheelbarrows, which, you know, now looking back at photos of it, you think, God, that's so idyllic. But at the time for my <laughs> mum, but for my mum and dad and the builders and their friends, it was probably just felt really basic. They were probably desperate for a, an oven. But yeah, so it was it was fun. It was quite, yeah, camping, camping vibes. And then when we when the downstairs kitchen was finished, um, when I was a little bit older, we did more baking just because she had more space and and a big treat was, you know, getting very English and having chocolate biscuit cake. And they would get the ingredients from this very funny shop in Florence called Ye Old England, which basically <laughs> which basically imported goods for English expats. But, you know, it was quite a treat because a packet of digestives was 20,000 lira, which is kind of nine quid. So, so it seemed kind of a bit of a, a bit of an expense. So, yeah, mixture of Tuscan and Tuscan and English food in the early days. And it sounds like that food and, and meal times were quite important to you as a family, even even when things were quite basic. Yeah, definitely. And it was my mum was very much about about feeding the troops, about making sure everyone was was well fed and well looked after. There were always built so yeah, until I was four or five, there were builders constantly around. And they were 
became great friends and were part of the family. And Mario, who was the head builder, sort of was part of our lives for until he died about 10 years ago. So he was around for kind of 20 years. And their mums and wives would sort of pack them off to work with, with lots of food in their rucksacks and they would take the food out of the rucksacks and add it to whatever my mum had prepared. But yeah, so food for me is definitely linked to kind of socialising and sun-drenched lunches outside and trying to take care of people, I suppose, and just make sure everyone's having a nice time. Um, what about school food? Were you eating Italian school food? Yeah, so the, our school was about a 20-minute drive away in the village, which was all, which was great, but, you know, it's quite far for my, for my parents to drive. A round trip is quite, you know, it's 40 minutes. And the Italian school system was then in the 90s and still is now basically the the timetable hasn't changed since Mussolini set it up in the 30s so it's very based on the assumption that the families sending their kids to school work in agriculture that they don't go anywhere and that there's always going to be a mamma or a nonna at home ready to take care of the kids so it's definitely quite outdated and inconvenient now so there's quite a mad system where depending on what year you were in, you ate lunch at school every other day. And this was became a big problem for my parents at one point because my sister, who's three years younger than me, Claudia, we started and we were never in sync. So they'd have to come pick one of us up and it was a bit of a mess. But the food, when we did have it, was delicious. Again, it was a lot of pasta, but very well made, very well executed. They made a very delicious pasta al forno so pasta with ragu baked in the oven and it always had that kind of perfect crust on the top it was never kind of soggy and then they always did oddly enough really good uh salads so amazingly for an eight-year-old I was obsessed with the grated carrots at school (laughs) they've made these really yummy grated carrots which were very oily very vinegary and very salty so maybe I don't know why, but once apparently I had four helpings and my teacher sort of (laughs) rang my parents and said, it's, I mean, it's great, but your child is obsessed with carrots. (laughs) So yeah, but yeah, they only offered that, I think, till one was 10 in primary school. And then from then on, it was always half day. So you didn't have school food anymore. But yeah, so it was quite limited. And you moved back to England when you were 13, is that right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, my parents realised we couldn't really read or write in English. <laughs> and was, I mean, it sounds like there would have been a few shocks to the system at that point, but how, were you aware of the difference in food at that stage? I think definitely my, the main thing my sister and I noticed was because my, when we moved to England, my mum started working full time for an interior designer. So she, um, so having, when we lived in Italy, she had a shop in the local village and that was her job. She was a, she had this lovely antiques shop, but we always had access to her and she was always at home to cook for us, even though she was working. Whereas when she got a job in London, she suddenly obviously was incredibly busy. And so she discovered the joys of M&S ready meals. Uh, and, and my sister and I sort of thought, hang on a minute, we're used to kind of delicious, made-from-scratch meals from the best ingredients. What is this? And, yeah, she laughed one day because we sort of said, do we really have to have shake and bake again? But, I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously it was very spoiling, delicious, the M&S, but it was, it was just different. At what stage did you start to take an interest in cooking yourself? My mum was always very strict with us about learning. She's a very good cook, and I think she's from that generation where... 
where they did it in home ec school. She learnt after when she finished school she, and, and she did it as a job when she was a teenager and in her early 20s. And whenever my sister and I liked something and said, oh, mama, how do you make this? She'd kind of stopped referring to recipes. So she would say, you know, I don't know, you'll have to watch me. And then she would make us sort of watch her and then help from a really young age, from kind of eight or something. So it was always, we're always involved. And then I think it was when I was about 12 that I was allowed to make a full meal by myself and cook it for, for the family. And I just loved that feeling of kind of feeding the people you love. And I think I made a roast chicken with grapes and boiled some potatoes and yeah, and just taking it to the table. I felt so proud and thrilled. And then later on, when I was at university, I cooked just for sort of private dinners and always worked as a waitress on the side. And then actually I was a waitress at the River Cafe for nine months, which obviously I wasn't in the kitchen, but the waiters and waitresses there are incredibly involved in the actual preparation of food. Um, you know, so everyone's, you're, you're peeling the potatoes, you're peeling the garlic, you're doing the parsley, and you're chatting a lot about the menu all the time. So that really helped, I think, focus my mind on the fact that it was what I really loved. And at what point did you think that it might be viable for you as a career? So when I was... At the River Cafe, just afterwards, my friend Will Roper Curzon and I started the Arniano Painting School, which is a painting holiday, essentially, at Arniano, the house I grew up in. Um, and the reason we started it was my father died in 2011, and my mum and sister and I kind of found it incredibly painful to be there, so we didn't go very often. And I, I found that just such a sad thing, because it was such a kind of monument to him and his Herculean efforts in the garden were why it was so beautiful and it was he was everywhere um so I was so sad that we were kind of turning away from it I also think houses die if if some of the key people die and then stop going there the actual atmosphere kind of really goes away or turns a bit sour or something so I wanted to breathe life back into it. So Will and I started doing these painting courses occasionally and the idea was I would cook and he would teach the painting and we would kind of marry these two things and have people stay. And it was kind of all night... And it was just going to be a side a side job, really, uh, an occasional thing. And then they started going really well and people kept coming back for the painting and the food and asking for recipes and wanting me to teach them so I suppose it was it was around then, which is like 2014, I think. And what sorts of dishes do you tend to cook for people at Arniane? Let's see. It's a lot of, well, there's an element of pasta, of course, but but we try and do, there's, I try and make a, the most of vegetables a lot. So, um, so artichoke and bechamel pie is a favourite. Um, ricotta and asparagus tart. It's, it's pretty seasonal because we have guests in, in the spring, and in the autumn, so so it depends when which course you're on. So you might get a lot of porcini if you're there in October, and you'll get a lot of kind of green veg if you're there there in the spring. Yes, and then one of my mum's go-to dishes for a lot of people I, I cook quite often, which is roast beef with green sauce, and then these lentils, which are so delicious. They call she calls them balsamic glazed lentils, and you cook the lentils with a with an onion, which is all studded with cloves so that they get quite spicy while they're actually boiling. And then you dress them with um, 
with balsamic glaze, parsley and pancetta. That's a really yummy thing. And you can kind of, it doesn't matter if you're making it for 10 or 30, it's kind of no more or less work. So that's quite a useful one. And what are the keys, do you think, to being a good hostess? I think trying to be, trying to make life as easy for yourself as possible and be as relaxed as possible. Because when I was at university, I mean, I saw a very good meme the other day saying, you know, my love language is to cook a very elaborate meal and then shout at you all you know and get stressed out which is I think the opposite of what you need to be a good hostess I think you need to yeah just make sure you feel relaxed having people over is as much about the host having a nice time as the guests so I usually I love writing out the menu having a very clear idea of what I'm going to make if people are coming for a few days that will involve looking at the kind of tetris of okay if we've had this for dinner what should we have for lunch the next day uh and then you know making lists trying to have as much ready ahead of time as possible i talk about this a bit in the book you know the things that are fun to do when you have a lot of time like making pastry or puddings and laying the table are not fun if you're rushed and it's the last minute and people are coming down for drinks or talking to you too much so yeah just I think prep and having plans in place is, is a really is the key to staying serene probably. Um, tell us about your new book A House Party in Tuscany how did you go about pulling together the recipes for it? Well, a lot of the recipes are my mum's, which, as I say, she she always claims she doesn't know how she makes things. So that was interesting, <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to kind of translate her magic or whatever she does, her very intuitive cooking into into recipes. But the idea for the book came about because our painters, um, many of whom come back again and again, and we're in our I think eighth year of, of running the painting courses, started saying occasionally. Um, what's the recipe for this and how do you make this so then it kind of just evolved from there and my husband started being very tiger husband and saying okay right book you've got to write it <laughs> and then I was introduced uh, by this wonderful photographer Robin Lee who took a lot of the photos in the book to her wonderful publisher Kirsten Abbott at Thames and Hudson and we were meant to have our first meeting about the book actually in March 2020 in London and then obviously the whole world came to a grinding halt but I was so thrilled because they didn't lose interest in the project because of the lockdowns they actually kind of took it up with even greater enthusiasm so we we talked a lot about it on um on zooms and it was really wonderful actually to have this embryonic project while I was in lockdown, I mean, I have no idea, Liv, I don't know how you did it, writing a book when normal life is going on. Um, <laughs> it's kind it's of slightly surreal. Very, yeah, very impressive. You know, I had, uh, yeah, I think my publisher said I was one of the first authors she'd had in a 20 year career who'd handed in their manuscript on time. And now, <laughs> but now life is back to normal. She's been waiting for something for me for, for like two months. So, um, so there we are. But yes, yeah, so I, how did I do it? I'm, I made lists of the recipes that I felt were most iconic of Arniano, of the painting courses, of our life there, and tried to slot them into to seasons and, and try and give some advice about how we host lots of people, give ideas for menus, kind of combinations of some of the meals so that people can kind of take different elements from the book and create their own feast or or kind of house party atmosphere or their own event. 
And yeah, just did a lot of cooking in lockdown, basically, and writing. And what's comfort food for you? When you're just cooking for you, what do you, what do you want? So in Italy, for children, they often give just this very simple thing, which is pastina in brodo. And it's basically um, mini pasta, maybe I talked about this earlier, with, with a stock cube crumbled into boiling water. And there's this very brilliant brand of stock cubes in Italy called Star, with the sort of house, a 50s housewife on the front wearing pearls. And, and you crumble that in, it's really delicious. So I usually just have a bowl of pastina in brodo, anything with broth basically makes me happy, or eggs. And um, I don't know if you know uh, stracciatella, which is a Roman soup with which eggs and parmesan. I really love that. Yeah, so combining eggs and, and chicken broth is is a big comfort food for me. And do you have a sweet tooth? Not really. There are definitely some some things I will I will definitely I will cave for, like a really good tiramisu or at my friend's at one of my favorite restaurants in Florence, uh my friend Chiara makes this amazing um persimmon tiramisu where she whizzes up persimmons and sort of layers it with mascarpone and um and savoyardi biscuits and that's really delicious. And on that note, tell us tell us where you like to eat out in in London and in Florence. So in Florence, well, my favorite restaurant is a restaurant called Trattoria Camillo, which is just below where we Matthew and I live in our flat, and it's just got such delicious original things. Chiara is so clever. Just trying to think, they make really good homemade pasta. Like for instance, at the moment with fresh garden peas, so it'll be like really buttery tagliolini with with fresh peas and it's just this very sweet kind of yummy cheesy cheesy pasta where else there's a lovely restaurant called uh, Vini Vecchi Sapori in Florence which is absolutely tiny and they just execute kind of Tuscan food really well and they have this hilarious habit of if they're full and they just don't want to talk to you about whether or not they have a table they just lock the door from the inside (laughs) and take the phone off the hook Um, so those are two of my favorites in Florence in London, obviously I love the River Cafe, but it feels a bit calls to Newcastle um, <laughs> nowadays. So I love. I went to um, I went to Sessions Arts Club the other day, which was really fabulous. The interiors are really wonderful, and they have these sort of original gas lamps from when it was a courtroom in the nineteenth century or twenty yeah nineteenth century, and they made this really delicious sort of. It was a cabbage leaf filled with a sort of rabbit terrine in a peppery, vinegary sauce. Very delicious. Yeah, and then I love... And when I'm in London, I really like going to places for the atmosphere more than anything. So the Wolsey or Zadell, any of those Corbin and King restaurants are kind of mm. so outside of what of what you get in Italy that I really love going to there or you know going for a really good Wiener schnitzel fishes and you know the sort of very crispy Wiener schnitzel with a delicious mash and the yummy gravy and I find that all very exciting and Amber to finish what would be your desert island meal I've been so, you know I'm so greedy that I was like I wonder what time of year they're going to cast me away <laughs> will it be will it be summer will it be winter what's going to be in season but I've just yeah I decided this is how much I thought about it that it's going to be winter so I can have all my favorite sort of truffly bits I, I absolutely love white truffle and we're very spoilt near where I live because it's in the Crete Sinesi um 
it's it's sort of like it's it's peak white truffle area in November, which is great. So I would probably have I would start with an aperitivo of white truffle procacci sandwiches. And Procacci is this lovely bar in Florence where it's quite famous. Yeah, it's this bar and they specialise in making these little, they're like a sort of finger-sized brioche bun, not too sweet though, cut in half and filled with this um, sort of truffle butter mixture. It's the recipe's secret, no one knows actually what's in them. And you have that with a glass of French quarter and you just have one or two before your dinner and it's sort of the perfect aperitivo. Then I'd, for my antipasto, I'd probably have deep fried artichokes and zucchini flowers but with a very light batter when they make it with the you know fizzy water and it's almost like a tempura with a side of prosciutto di parma which is they call in italian they call it um prosciutto dolce which is like different to um different to prosciutto salato which is the tuscan type but so prosciutto di parma is is a bit fattier well the meat's leaner but then it has these very it's very velvety sort of fat which makes it all really yummy with the frittura and then for my main I would have from Camillo which is the restaurant I mentioned earlier she makes this incredible thing called a timballo di pigione which is pasta in in pigeon ragu baked into a sort of sweet crust pastry pie and it's incredible and she she makes it, Chiara makes it very rarely because it takes about four days to make because you have to find the very specific pigeons, roast them, take the meat off, make the ragu, parboil the pasta, mix it with the thing, make the pastry. So it's a, it's a big old process, but a slice of that is um is really heaven. And it's quite funny because sort of everyone in Florence starts texting each other when it's on the menu going, it's the timballo, it's the timballo. <laughs> they all rush to the restaurant. and Yeah, she's been clever about creating a buzz around it well amber thank you very much for joining table talk and amber's new cookbook a house party in tuscany is available now